Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Across the country, crimes involving elder abuse and neglect routinely go unreported. But even when those cases aren't immediately reported to police, there can often be clues in Medicare and Medicaid data. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services already looks for those signs in claims data, but a recent IG audit found a lot more cases that could have been reported to state and local authorities if CMS had done a more rigorous analysis. Curtis Roy is a regional inspector general with HHS. Richard Miller is an assistant regional inspector general. They spoke with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu about their findings. You hear Miller first. Promoting public health and safety is a major component of the HHS OIG strategic plan. And we've conducted a number of audits in different care settings that revealed problems related to unreported incidents of potential abuse or neglect. Our current work really started about a decade ago after several media reports concerning unreported abuse and neglect in group homes. At that time, the the challenge we faced was how to identify incidents that we're not aware of, that aren't reported. That's when we came up with the idea to focus on data analysis. If the patients require medical treatment and Medicare pays for it, then there is a record of the events, even if it was unreported. And that was really our starting point. This type of data analysis wasn't being performed at the time. So it was about thinking outside the box to help address an ongoing problem. That makes perfect sense. And that's a great setup to talk about what you actually found in this this latest audit. So tell us a bit about what the, the numbers reveal about the the total number of potentially unreported cases out there? So by performing a data extract of Medicare claims data um, using these diagnosis codes that specifically indicate abuse and neglect was suspected, we identified approximately 30,000 claims over a two-year period where abuse or neglect was suspected. We then selected a random sample of these claims review the supported medical records and confirm whether the incidents were reported to the appropriate agencies. We found that as many as one in five of the incidents weren't properly reported. If the agency's unaware of the incident, then they can't investigate and ensure that the Medicare enrollees are safe in receiving the quality care they deserve. And is CMS correctly identifying any universe of these potential cases and notifying law enforcement? How, how does that currently work? How's it, how, how could it work? Sure. CMS shares the same commitment to patient safety as the HHSOIG and is well aware that abuse and neglect of Medicare enrollees is is a significant problem. In fact, that there are federal requirements, um, you know, such as the conditions of participation in 1150, Section 1150B of the Social Security Act that specifically address um, reporting cases of abuse and neglect. However, based on the results of our audit, you know, we're seeing that there are gaps in these requirements. The re- recommendations in our report were for, for CMS to analyze the data to identify specific trends and patterns, conduct a targeted claims review to assess the issue, and develop guidance and best practices based on their findings. We also recommend recommended that CMS assess whether existing federal requirements for reporting abuse and neglect should be strengthened in CMS did agree with all of our recommendations. The the key takeaway from this audit is that Medicare data is a valuable resource and there's a real opportunity to use this data to protect Medicare enrollees by reducing the frequency of unreported incidents. 
So we've conducted a number of related audits, which really started with Medicaid data. And based on the results of those audits, you know, we have clear evidence that this type of data analysis does work. Based on our prior work, we're starting to see states effectively use data analysis to reduce unreported incidents in the Medicaid program. And we're confident that a similar approach can benefit Medicare enrollees as well. And this may be beyond the scope of your work, but but is there any sense at this point how big a lift it would be for CMS to start using the data in the way that you're suggesting, Eric? Do, do they have the adequate analytical capability to start making this routine? Sure. CMS does have current safeguards in place um, through their quality improvement and program integrity functions, you know, to, to improve quality of care and, you know, prevent fraud, waste and abuse. I just want to make it clear that there there are current mechanisms in place and our recommendations are intended to improve those mechanisms. A few years ago, we, we issued a related audit report um, where we recommended that CMS perform a similar type of claims analysis and then provide that data to the states so the states can ensure that the incidents were properly reported. However, as part of our current audit, we met with CMS to really understand the obstacles that they had implemented our prior recommendations. You know, it's been a number of years in, in the rec- recommendations still haven't been implemented. Based on these conversations, we came to understand that there's a, a better mechanism to, 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 to perform this function. We specifically recommended in our report for CMS to analyze the trends, assess the issue, and then decide where to go from there. So the main obstacle, can you explain that a little bit more? Why was reporting back to the states the recommendations that you made in your previous uh, audit work, the recommendation that they communicate directly with the states? Why did they see that as an obstacle? And and why is the approach you're now recommending seen as more feasible? So in our prior audit report, CMS did not concur with several of our recommendations. They cited um, several issues with providing the data to to the states, such as logistical issues, uh, as well as concerns uh, with HIPAA provisions. Okay, so this new approach essentially just gives them a little bit more freedom to make good decisions about what to do with that data, rather than setting a strict policy that says this information goes to the states. Have I got that about right? Sure, that's exactly right. Our recommendations are intended to give CMS the flexibility you know, to use their expertise and then to, to develop methods to incorporate the, the data analysis methodology that we developed. And Kurt, I definitely want to get you in here before we have to say goodbye. Uh, you know, what else should people know about this audit and any other resources out there that you might want to mention? Yeah, you know, we view this as a problem. We've done multiple reports on this issue and one of the things that I always like to say to folks who, you know, have relatives in some sort of care facility, be it a nursing home, skilled nursing facility, group home, whatever it might be, a hospital, wherever, that if people see something that they question whether or not potential abuse or neglect is is occurring, that they say something. Because again, this is all part of that getting these possible incidents reported into the proper authorities so that they can be checked out. And if if something's wrong, it can be dealt with. Because if people don't say anything, it may take a while for the things that we're recommending 
to loop back around and you know get that data back out to the people that can do something about it. We wrote back in 2019 a resource guide that's out on our website in order to help our partners out there do the kind of data analysis that we're talking about right here, whether they be a Medicare contractor who processes these insurance claims, whether it's a compliance department in a hospital, uh, whether it's a state Medicaid agency, you know, and we've heard from all of these different types of groups about this resource guide. It is being used and it's just a step-by-step how-to volume to show people what was the logic that we used when we started doing this kind of data analysis written in such a fashion that they can follow it too and that they can do what we've done. Resource guide for using diagnosis codes in health insurance claims to help identify unreported abuse or neglect. It is pretty useful and It does address an awful lot about what we've just talked about. Curtis Roy, a regional HHS inspector general, and we also heard from assistant regional inspector general Richard Miller, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. We'll post this interview along with links to their report and their resource guide at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's um, 
It's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had 
gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency so we're really still creating who we're gonna become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions 
expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.